0: Have you begun to prepare for Christmas? Have you begun to prepare for Christmas? Yes, we are in the middle of a hot, muggy summer, but I suggest that you begin to think about Christmas. I understand that Shaw's has already put out the Halloween candy, and before you know it, you'll be walking through stores and you will find that Christmas has exploded all around you. Then you will reach the Christmas sprint, decorate the house, buy gifts, schedule family gatherings and travel, Christmas events that you have to attend at work, performances that perhaps your children or grandchildren have at school. Christmas is 154 days from today. Now I should clarify, I don't recommend that you solely look ahead to December 25th. But actually, I encourage you to look out over beyond the horizon. Look past December 25th. Look past the next five Christmases. Look past even perhaps the next 50 or 500 Christmases. And find the best way that you can not only prepare for Christmas, but the best way your heart can be nourished today your heart can be nourished as you approach not December 25th, but July 25th, is to look to the future return of Jesus and the joy that will grip his people who are captivated by his beauty. Today's sermon text, Psalm 98, was the inspiration for a poem that Isaac Watts wrote back in 1719. Watts pimmed it, and then it slipped into obscurity, seemingly forgotten, stuck in 1719, and yet time marching on. Yet that poem that Watts titled Joy to the World remained largely hidden from the world until a composer named Lowell Mason uncovered it and put it to music in 1848. And we are thankful to God that it was put to music, aren't we? That poem, based on this psalm, helps us to look at the coming of Jesus. Yes, Psalm 98 is a servant of your joy in the Christ who is to come. So what I'm going to argue from Psalm 98, what I want to present before you, a big idea I want us to hang on to, is that the future return of the Lord Jesus is your hope for unshakable joy. Let me say that again. The future return of the Lord Jesus is your hope for unshakable joy. Follow along as I read this psalm. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm, they have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises, sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. The world and those who dwell in it Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. May God write these truths of His Word, these promises of His grace upon our hearts. Three ways that this coming of Jesus equips us with unshakable joy. Just making our way through this psalm, it can be broken into three stanzas. First, in verses 1 through 3, our call, what the psalm commands of us, what the psalm calls us to, and that is to praise the Lord. Right at the outset, there's something we have to understand about this psalm. The psalm begins with an appeal right at the beginning of verse 1. You see that in verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song for he has done marvelous things. This is not uncommon to the psalms. You hear a call on how to respond, and then underneath that, the psalmist just layers or builds a foundation all the reasons why this is the case. So sing to the Lord a new song, and now we're going to unfold all the reasons underneath it why we can. Now, his intention is not a literal new song, though there's nothing wrong with that, but his intention is to call to mind a new song rejoicing in the new work that God has done on behalf of His people. He's like, I, I, I want to awaken you. May you be awakened to a fresh experience of His great grace. His grace and power has broken through and it has dwelled upon you. God is not in the business of producing robots who praise Him who say the right things, but their hearts are disinterested? Or their hearts are detached? Or perhaps they've become disenchanted with God? God is not interested in making you a robot who says and even does all the right things while your heart is far from Him. No, God is in the business of capturing, of captivating hearts. Because then when hearts are captured and captivated by Him, then the praise springs forth. So the psalmist gives us reasons for the heart behind the praise, and we see that on the second line of verse 1. For he has done marvelous things. And then he lists out four things that the Lord has done that prompts our praise. Just see these as I read them. His, His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Secondly, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Thirdly, He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. And fourthly, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Here's something wonderful that Scripture reveals to us. Scripture displays the fantastic works of God as he rescues, as he redeems his people from sure destruction, from the effects of their own sinful rebellion against him. So, what happens is God regularly breaks through seemingly impossible situations and shows himself sufficient, capable to rescue, to minister to, to care for his people. And yet, here's what Scripture shows to us, and this is absolutely fantastic it presents an image, a picture, a story an unfolding event, like God divinely rescuing His people. Think of like when He, He rescued His people out of Egypt and He parted the Red Sea, that they may go through and escape slavery, escape death that was awaiting them. And then what happens is in Scripture, that story or that event finds its great and total fulfillment in Christ. So as God parted the Red Sea and and worked miraculous wonders that His people might flee slavery in Egypt, in Christ, He has defeated, not Egypt, but He has defeated the sin that would enslave us, that would keep us away from Him through Christ's death on the cross. So now through Christ, we have a a gap or a chasm that has been uh, uh, broken through between us and God that we might now come to Him. And this, the, you see this kind of picture, you see this kind of imagery throughout Scripture with various images. Now, okay, the Red Sea. After that, the people, what? They're walking through the wilderness and they're making their way to the Promised Land. As Christians, we recognize that we are journeying towards a Promised Land, towards a Promised rest in the presence of our King. Now, I don't know if these still exist, but, but when I was a child, there would be activity books or there would be worksheets that would have, you remember, like 50 or 100 or 150, or sometimes maybe 200 if they are really uh, uh, ambitious, like little dots all on a page. And a kid would go through and just go from dot to dot, one to two, two to three, three to four, and try to make their way through. And, and what that's doing is that is revealing a picture as you go. And ultimately, it reaches a point where it gives you a final completed picture. So I remember doing those as a child. You guys, you guys remember those, right? And I remember doing those as a child. And, and sometimes it would start to take shape, and you're like, oh, that, it's a tiger, and then you get 50 more dots. And like, oh, actually, that tiger is actually an airplane. You know, well, you do a few more, and it's, oh, no, it's not an airplane. I got to the finished product. It's a boy doing chores and obeying his mom. Like, mom, what kind of activity book is this that you're making me do? But in God's grace, he totally reveals in Christ the completed picture of Of all that our Old Testaments anticipate. And so Christ does not negate or eliminate the Old Testament, but Christ fulfills. And so when we have these promises of God's salvation that He has worked, they're anticipatory in this sense and they're looking forward to Christ who will accomplish this work in its finality. So as the psalmist writes of the grace of God that has been worked, the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, the ends of the earth seeing His salvation. We know this is fully and finally realized in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so verses 1 through 3 are a picture of people who are totally captivated by their God. We have to acknowledge the truth that you will not be captivated by what you only think you have a casual need for. One danger that we navigate in the Christian life is the threat of subtly starting to believe that we are not in desperate need for Jesus, or starting to believe that Jesus is not capable of meeting us exactly where we are and caring for us or working in his transforming power within us. And this is why we need Christmas, is it not? In the mess and mire of our hearts, God has not stood off to the side, unwilling or unable to get his hands dirty know what God has done as He has entered the mess of human existence and of this world in order that He might rescue us and usher us into an entirely new reality as trophies of His grace. So you have this call to praise the Lord and this reality of His grace that has come to His people in Christ. And so what happens is that this reality produces passion in worshipers of God. This is the second point that we see in verses 4 to 6. So, a call, praise the Lord. Second, what is the condition of those who praise the Lord? They are passionate in their praise. Look at this, this, this in verses four, and six, 4 to 6. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Pause there. People who break forth Into joyous song are ones whose hearts have been gripped by that of which they sing. Sing praise, verse five sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. Have you ever had one of those dreams that seemed as if it was so real that after you woke up you needed a few moments to compose yourself? and say, okay, okay am, was that real? Am, am I, what, what's real, what's not? I still have those dreams, and some of you perhaps have these, where you're, you're nearing graduation from college or high school or whatever, and you find out that there's a class that you have been registered for all semester, but you have not attended it. You didn't even know you were registered for it. But you have to pass this class to graduate. Anyone else have, ever had that dream? A few of us, okay, good. Good, I'm not the only one. In my dream, it's always like a really, like it's like a medieval European philosophy or something, something that, that just, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to be flying blind. No chance on that. You know, you're not, you're not going to be able to just, you know, just sneak through with a 70. No, you feel like you're flying blind. Anyway, the hard knock nature of life the demands that we face, the things that keep you up at night, the stresses that jump around from any corner, what they are is they exist in tension with the wonders of Christianity. And so as Christians sitting under God's Word, we have to figure out, okay, what is dream, what is reality? Or maybe more appropriately stated, what is nightmare, what is reality? And so we could start to think through this by what is thinking about what is temporary and what is permanent. The demands, the pains of life, the fears that grip you, they will either be revealed to be temporary or they will be revealed to be permanent and they will wreak havoc upon you. Either you are navigating life hanging on by a thread and waiting for the bottom to fall out at any moment or you are entirely secure in Jesus Christ and you recognize that nothing can threaten you. Let me say it like this, and what what Psalm 98 forces us to wrestle with. Is today ultimate or is tomorrow ultimate? Either today in this life is all that there is, everything orients around how I'm feeling right now or what is going on in my life. Or tomorrow is ultimate and I know that the Lord who has set his grace upon me will bring me unto himself where I will enjoy him and praise him in everlasting gladness. And so that can inform what I understand about my today. If Jesus and the truthfulness of his work, his life, his cross, his resurrection, his ascension, if this is but a dream, you will wake up on Monday morning and you will find yourself twisting in the wind of so many forces outside of your control. But if the gospel, Jesus' work, if it is experientially true, not just intellectually true, but experientially true where you believe that God has set his love upon you and that nothing you are facing can rip that away and that that has entirely reoriented the direction and the trajectory of your life. Then this will fundamentally change how you understand your present moment. And you know where this breaking in of the kingdom of God in our experience is first realized and made known? The ground zero for whether or not it is real or not, it's your heart it is your heart. Here's what I mean. You either believe that God has set his love upon you, and no matter how much of a disaster your life may feel like it is, your family may feel like it is, your relationships may feel like they are, no matter how much your record of your own sin stands before you as if it's expert testimony ready to be read into the record for your condemnation and your conviction, all the myriad of reasons for you to be unworthy, to be loved by God, if you truly recognize that by the grace of Christ, God has set his love upon you, then this will fundamentally change how you understand yourself, how you understand your present and your future. Do you want this? This is how the people of God could be exhorted to praise the Lord. How they could break out into joyous song. The things that they had heard had become reality for them. I so desperately want you to experience and take hold of the Jesus who can transform you from bouncing back and forth from crisis to crisis, nightmare to nightmare. And He can wake your soul to see that His goodness is entirely true and you are protected by nail-pierced hands. If you would like to come to know this Jesus, if you'd like to know more of this Jesus, maybe you hear this and think, no way these promises are true. That He can, change my, he can fundamentally change how I understand myself and my world. You think, no way that's true, Stephen. May I request, may I recommend That you even just investigate this, examine God's word, see what it reveals to us about Jesus. If I can help you begin to know where to start, I would love to speak with you about this. Feel free to grab me after our service and we can talk about it further. Now, it's possible that some may say, Well, Stephen, I'm I'm a Christian. I know that. I've, I've repented of my sin, I've come to Christ by faith, but passion for him is difficult. You can't turn passion on. How do I turn on feeling? Well, let's understand a few things about this call and the passion behind it. Passion is not necessarily the loudest voices or the most boisterous examples. It's what bursts forth from the heart that truly hopes in the Lord, not the one just looking for an experience. Perhaps you would be well served to take time today to pray for the Lord to cause the wonders of His work towards you to become so undeniably real that you cannot help but respond with passion that breaks forth in song. Born of the reality of His love that is set upon you through Christ. But I must warn you, when you encounter, when you begin to experience that felt awareness of the real Jesus, you will find that you cannot remain the same. You will find that passion for Christ begins to supersede passions towards other things, begins to cause the things of this earth to grow strangely dim. But I urge you that it is all the more worth it. And he is all the more beautiful. Dear Christians, may you resolve that you are going to mine the depths of God's grace to you. You're going to dig for those precious jewels. Those beautiful diamonds that reveal his glories. You're going to search far and wide throughout the Bible. You're going to resolve to grow in fellowship with one another in our church family, seeking to serve for one another's passion and praise of the Lord. How do we do that? Simply by encouraging one another in the faith, lifting one another up in prayer, meeting with one another and looking at God's Word together as a means of spurring our joy in the Lord. No, you don't need, our community does not need another domesticated God. A God who blesses all of our wildest dreams and who is, we think we commit, command to do our bidding. We don't need a domesticated God that we call upon whenever we think we need Him and we expect Him to meet our needs. We need the real God who is capable of, of washing us over, knocking us down, inundating us with a grace that we never tire of, with a love that is always fresh and never stale. And with promises for His grace to guard and keep us that are as real as the lunch plans you have after we leave today. A God who has made eternity and the glories of his presence so sweet and so real that they jump off the pages of sympathy hallmark cards and are stamped on your heart. This is the God that we need This is the God that our community needs. Beginning the evening of Wednesday, August 2nd, each following Wednesday throughout August, we're going to meet on Wednesday evenings at 7. To look at Scripture, to sing, to go before the Lord, to pray for ourselves as a church family, but also for our community. That God would do a work through us in causing the real Jesus revealed in His Word, reigning in glory over us, to become ever-apparent in our community, drawing people who previously had no use for him, who thought him to be be irrelevant, incapable, unable to meet their needs, to address the cries of their heart, praying for him to become supremely beautiful and to transform lives as they are submitted to him I invite you, if you are able, to join me for these times on Wednesday evenings in August for us to go before the Lord in prayer for this. Now back to our text. We have this call to praise God. We have the condition of those who praise God. They are not calloused. They are passionate. They are moved. But now I want to remember we're we're looking at the layers. We're digging out. All that would give us hope and in praising God. And I want to reach the bottom layer here of Psalm 98. Get to the bedrock, the foundation of our praise and our passion. And that final layer, that bottom layer, is the comfort of the promise of Jesus' return. You can look at it like this praise, passion, promise. In verses seven to nine, we praise God because we know that one day we will see our Lord Jesus face to face. And He will rule over His creation. I want you to see something absolutely stunning. Look at the beginning of verse 7. Look at how creation joins in this praise of Jesus. Verse 1, the people of God are called to praise God. Verses 4 to 6, it tells how they will do so. They will break forth in joyous song. Verses 7 to 9, now look, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it, Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. Pause here. Why does creation join together in rejoicing? Well, verse 9 tells us, Before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth, He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. What this is saying is Jesus will one day return to reign over His people. He will return and reign over all of creation. you recognize how truly earth-shattering this claim is? He will judge the world with righteousness. He will judge the peoples with equity. This is a promise of Jesus reigning in perfect glory, not abusing His power. I always get a kick out of elections whenever, after, let's say, a president is elected, or not so much now because we live in such a divided, polarized, politically polarized country, but you can remember maybe decades ago when a president was elected or uh, 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 things were, were good and they'd have an approval rating around, I don't know, 50, even 60, 65% sometimes. But then over the course of their term, four years, eight years, whatever, they, it would just decline, it would decline, it would decline, it would decline. It never goes up. And I think part of that is because the people under that president's government would grow disenchanted. I had dreams, I had hopes for this administration. They weren't fulfilled. I had ways in which I need, I I, I thought government would would reign in justice and righteousness. And it didn't happen. But what Psalm 98 shows us that there is a king who is coming, who will reign justly, who will reign rightly, and his people will rejoice in him for all of eternity. And you know, he can do far greater than pass tax policy or be a commander-in-chief of military. The front page of the Boston Globe this morning contains stories covering the following subjects. Some cancer rates in younger adults are increasing, and doctors and researchers aren't quite sure why. Police are investigating multiple fatal car crashes while families and loved ones grieve lives lost. The dangers of climate change and how reliable public transport is vital to lowering emissions. You catch the drift there? Bad news, bad news, grief, sorrow, lives cut short, the future is in danger, And none of this is unreal. These fears, these griefs, they torment hearts. You would have been surprised if you saw good news on the front page today, wouldn't you? Let me ask you, what does the front page of the newspaper of your heart, of your mind, reveal? What news drives you to either despair or delight? What crowds into your mind ever so quickly when you are left alone to your thoughts late at night? Or perhaps when you're on that quiet car ride, thinking, pondering, worrying, reflecting. Whatever it may be, dear Christian, may I assure you, with the confidence of what Psalm 98 reveals to us, that our Lord Jesus will one day return and he will be welcomed by all of creation, rejoicing in him. Seas that rage, temperatures that skyrocket, wildfires that burn, air quality that is terrible, inundating rains, horrible blizzards, these will all be righted in an instant when the Lord of creation returns hearts that are broken, marriages that are wrecked, bodies that are diseased and die, these will all be righted in an instant when the Lord Jesus returns. All who have passed away, whether it was those who came before us in the faith even thousands and thousands of years ago, Or even those who pass milliseconds before Christ returns. All who are united with Christ by faith, they will be resurrected to eternal life, enjoying his reign over creation made new. Yes, a new heavens and a new earth. This is what Isaac Watts was getting at when he penned Joy to the World. He not only wrote it that we may look back at the first coming of Christ, but he wrote it so that the church may hope in the second coming of Christ. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven. And heaven and nature sing. Do you hear Psalm 98? Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks and hills and plains, repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love. And wonders of his love. And wonders, wonders of his love. Do you hear Psalm 98? But more importantly than just hearing Psalm 98, does your heart see the King who is coming? Brothers and sisters, as you patiently, hopefully, joyfully wait for the Lord, amidst the trials of today, do you recognize that each moment that you see the glories of the coming Christ and his sufficiency, that he will reign over the worries of your heart, each moment of that, this day, you are storing up eternal joy for your soul. Have you begun to prepare for Christmas? For the sake of your joy, I recommend you begin to prepare. But don't just look back at the birth of Christ. Look ahead to his coming return. Look to his future return and how it will serve your soul in the calamities of whatever you face now in the present. Dear Christian, the future return of Jesus is your hope for unshakable joy.